You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. Before we start today's show, how does the offer of free beer sound to you? As a loyal listener of the show, we'd like to reward you with just that, free beer. Thanks to our friends at Beer52, the UK's most popular craft beer discovery club, you have the opportunity to sip eight free exclusive craft beers from all around the world. All you need to do is go to beer52.com forward slash wisdom and just cover the £4.95 postage fee and the beers will be delivered to your doorstep. As well as the beers, you get a magazine and a snack as part of the deal. They send subscribers a crate of beer every month, and there's a different theme for the beers each time. We're able to pause or cancel your subscription at any time. Anyway, on with the show. I'm Yazrana, and with me today is the editor-in-chief of the Wisdom Cricket Monthly magazine, Phil Walker. How's it going, Phil? Yeah, surviving, yes. That's all I can offer, surviving. Excellent. And with us for the first time on the show, we're very grateful to be joined by David Gower. David, thanks for joining us. How are you finding lockdown so far? Um, yes, we're doing all right. Um, I have to confess we are sort of locked down in a very, very lovely part of the country in Hampshire with a little bit of space uh, to play in. So it it could be a lot worse. I have to confess that. Uh, we haven't run out of wine yet. Um, thank you for that beer offer. Uh, when Wisdom comes up with the Lynch Barge 82 offer, uh, I'll be signing up. <laughs> um, David, we're going to base a lot of this show on your appearance on Desert Island Discs all the way back in 1984. Classic. Um, I highly recommend our listeners to look back for that online after they finish <laughs> this show. First off, David, do you remember doing doing that interview? <laughs> yeah, uh, there are certainly gaps in my memory, but I do remember, yeah, it, it was it was uh, the Roy Plumley version, the, the original Roy Plumley, Roy, sorry, Roy Plumley, um, who is a charming, charming man. Um, what I can't remember, to be honest, is my... Each and every choice from 1984. There would have been Genesis. There was probably a bit of Elton John. There would have been some classics. Um, but I'm looking forward to reminding me which on earth I picked. Yeah, it's a it's a great great list actually. So you went Handel, Elton John, Genesis, yeah. Beethoven, Supertramp, Dire Straits, Al Stewart, and Ralph Vaughan Williams. What a top eight that is. <laughs> uh, well, and that, that, I mean, that's just unbeatable. I mean, surely that must be the finest ever edition. Um, yeah, Rafe Vaughan Williams would have been, that would have been Fantasy on a Theme by Thomas Tallis, probably. I believe so. Yeah. I think that's I'm right. Hoping, I'm hoping, I'm hoping, which is still, I still rate that as one of my absolute favourite bits of music. Actually, when I was um, young and 
trying to do other things apart from playing cricket. Um, I spent a couple of years pretending I could play musical instruments. You know, did the usual thing at school, learning the recorder first and then trying to learn the piano. And the one thing I could play on the piano from memory was a Thomas Tallis hymn, which is the theme behind the Fantasia on a theme by Thomas Tallis. So there is a, a link even further back than 1984 there. Do you remember... Um how fond Roy was of you, David, because I've listened to loads of these old Desert Island books and mm. he plays it quite straight down the line with almost all guests in that old school way, yeah. that old kind of received pronunciation English way, except with you. He was clearly a cricket fan and he was rather taken with you uh, back mm. in 1984. And it's a beautiful interview because he's trying to keep his fandom just about under wraps. But it, it creeps out. It creeps out quite often through this this forty minutes of radio gold. It was it was a beautiful thing to listen to. It really is. I mean, I guess the word is avuncular because um, there would have been an obvious age mm-hmm. difference. Um, I mean, eighty four was I in eighty four? Simple mass. I was sort of uh, mid twenties, late twenties, um, and so actually relatively young for Desert yeah. Island discs. Um, it's a little bit like writing your own autobiography at the age of 21. You know, you know, has the story really got any legs yet? Um, and I, mean, I, I took it at the time as something that was you know, something of an honour because it was it's still an iconic show. Roy had obviously made it his very own show mm-hmm. from birth. Um, and, I mean, you just imagine the number of people, the breadth of people who've been on that show before and since, and um, with all sort of subsequent hosts, it's an extraordinary icon that, you know, still has legs nowadays. I found it quite interesting hearing about the start of your career on the show. So um, I don't know if there was an element of false modesty, but it sounded like people around you at least weren't necessarily expecting you to become a professional cricketer, even when you were 18. You said that you hadn't sorted out your own personal ambitions at that point. You're only playing test cricket a couple of years after so I find it quite hard to believe that you didn't have your heart or head set on becoming a full-time professional at that point. Well, I'll tell you what, in, in all honesty, um, the as I sort of vaguely remember it, and of course there is an element here of you can probably sort of make it up to suit the story now, to suit the narrative. But as I remember it, um, first of all, for instance, you know, going back to school days, you play, play all your sports. I mean, I was playing cricket, I was uh, in rugby teams, hockey teams, all that sort of stuff. And you play all your sport. Um, as well as you can, because the, you know, the better you play it, the more you enjoy it. And that sort of sense of competition comes through. Um, I don't remember saying things, which I've always said, I don't remember saying, well, I'm going to play for England when I'm you know, 18, 19, 20, 21, whatever it might be. Um, and for the first few years of that sort of amateur, then professional career, I was just sort of living for the moment, living the moment, just living in the moment, because um, that's all you had to do. I mean, I, I yes, I learned the lessons. I had sort of railing worth at Leicestershire as a very um, strict captain, um, and you learned very quickly that you know there are standards to be met. Uh, but of course, again, the same principle drives you, which is you know the better you get, and your success is enjoyable. So, and you know, then the the, the upward spiral is the more you enjoy it, the better you play, the better you play, the more you enjoy it, and that's what you want to keep going as long as you possibly can until you hit whatever top level you, is your final level. So in those early years, it really was as simple as just playing. So, I mean, Raymond would give me lectures at Leicestershire. Uh, when I got through to the England team, um, what, well, age 21, and Mike Brearley was captain. Um, and I remember, for instance, 
Um, it wasn't a bad start, but your second test match against Pakistan at Lords, um, first morning, I got 50 pretty quickly, seemed to be breezing my way through, through the morning rather nicely. Played an atrocious sweep shot, which I missed, <laughs> off Iqbal Kazim and was bowled. So I wandered off back in the pavilion, you know, lunch beckoning. Uh, after which, Mike had a quiet word, which was along the lines of, um, you know, test matches are five days. Uh, you've got plenty of time to bat. Big scores are the order. You know, nothing changes. You know, that was the same then in 1978 as it is now. You know, big scores and big totals put you in good positions to win matches. So, you know, that sort of classic dilettante 50-something um, basically counted very low on his scale of worthiness. Um, so you, you're always that's that's when I sort of kind of started to realise that the game was a bit more serious. I mean that sounds very casual now, um, but in, in all truth, that was very much the way it evolved. Did Ray get you get you into that side? In effect, did did, did Ray still have quite a ser- serious influence on English cricket? Do you think at that time, albeit what 1978 by then, the legend that was Ray Illingworth, he must have had quite uh, quite a lot of oomph still in English cricket. And do you think he? not only kept you vaguely on the straight and narrow, but also helped get you into that England side so early? Um, I would have to say yes. Um, I think, um, I mean, certainly Raymond, with his reputation, uh, if someone asked him, what do you think about this young lad Gower who's playing for you now? He would be, uh, he, he sort of tended to be sort of reasonably friendly about his, you know, people like me, I, a protege of his in that side. Um, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't lie, put it that way. He wouldn't sort of say that I was better than mm-hmm. I was just for the sake of supporting the young man under his wing. Um, so he would tell people about the, the faults, I'm sure. Um, he would tell people about the potential. I mean, the other man, actually, in all seriousness, who played a major part too was Mike yeah. Turner, who was the, the boss at Leicestershire in those days, the secretary at Leicestershire, uh, because Mike was very well respected. And again, when I, you, you find these out later, find these things out later on. Mike would have been having chats in committee rooms, um, would have been having chats with selectors, um, you know, and was always putting in a good word. So actually, I owe both of them a lot, uh, both in terms of sort of cricketing education, those first three years at Leicestershire and beyond. Um, and also because you're quite right, as you pointed out, they would have had influence behind the scenes, which you know, as a player, you don't necessarily become aware of that until a lot later. So they would have been saying the right things to the right people. And all that sort of politics that goes on quietly is all part of getting people I'm like me into mm-hmm. into a side. Did the first call up come as much of a surprise to you? Um, I saw today that you you actually only averaged twenty three with the bat in first class cricket in in nineteen seventy seven. <laughs> um, were there people saying that your selection devalued the county championship? <laughs> um, <laughs> I think um, actually I, I can trump that yes because. Many years later, um, Christopher Martin Jenkins, the lovely, lovely CMJ, uh, one of his after-dinner lines um, was along the lines of David Gower has decided to retire from first-class cricket but will continue playing for England. And the implication was that county cricket was a sort of sideline, that my concentration, my application was better when it came to playing for England than maybe it did for Leicestershire. Um, that's a mixed bag. I mean, I think the, but going back to your question at that stage, yes, my, um, as you've so rightly pointed out, I'm sure it's a, a true, I'm sure it's not fake news. The, the figures were not necessarily, um, what you would base a 8,000 odd run 
uh, England career on um, in the future. But the the judge, I mean, going back, it's, it was the judgment. I mean, judgment of people like Raymond, the judgment of those that watched, the judgment of those that had to pick sides. Um, a little bit, should we say, I don't know what Marcus Triscothic's figures were at the time he was picked by Duncan Fletcher, in effect by Duncan Fletcher. But Marcus was a hunch for Duncan, which turned out to be a really, really good hunch. Um, and, I mean, there are people who have that ability, and I'm not necessarily one of them, who have that ability to look at, say, an 18, 19, 20-year-old and say, right, this man has what looks like all the right sort of talent, and the hard part is identifying the bit inside the brain that then makes it all work as the challenges get tougher. So, yeah, I'm very glad that whatever the figures were at that time, uh, someone took that hunch on my behalf. And, of course, the opportunity was also opened up by Mm. Packer and by the fact there were various players who would have been senior England batsmen at the time who were therefore unavailable because of their uh, signing up for Kerry Packer. So, I mean, that, that sort of combination of circumstances gave me a chance. And then, of course, the I'm afraid the usual rules always apply. If you take the chance, you get a career out of it. If you fail to take the chance, um, then county cricket does become much more important. Do you think we go off stats too often when we're judging players, particularly players that are in the discussion for England call-ups? Well, I mean, it's it's an easy place to start, isn't it? Um, if you're tr- if you're looking at someone, I mean, for instance, you know, if someone... Um, I mean, someone like me as a commentator, and I'm not, uh, you know, for the last 20 years, I've not seen, uh, in all honesty, particularly much county cricket live. Um, you go on what you hear, you go on other people's judgments, you go on figures. When you see someone for the first time, you instantly, is, you know, I would say, have a sort of a feel as to how they shape. You know, all the things, that when, you, when you're looking at, say, a young batsman, you know, things like balance, timing, uh, position, uh, shots, you, know, you sort of build up an image very quickly as to whether a player looks like he might succeed. Um, you're not always right. Um, but largely speaking, I think you know, that sort of experience brings you to the right place. And stats are part of it, yeah. Um, but nowadays, of course, you've got the analysis of everything that goes on is so much more advanced. You know, in 1978, uh, making my debut for England with, I mean, I guess, who is it? Alec Bedsett as chairman of selectors, probably. Um, you know, Alec, very old style, very upright, very honest, very experienced. Um, but he wouldn't have had, you know, megabytes of data to look at. Where nowadays, of course, you look at all the analysis that's going on. I mean, it's hugely b- bigger and better than it was all that time ago. One thing that also stood out from from the Desert Island Discs interview was you mentioned how you were working in the off-season in your early days at Leicester before you first played for England. Do you think cricketers in your era had, had more rounded educations, as it were, than in current international cricketers, who a lot of whom have year-round professional contracts in their teens? Oh, that's, that's an interesting one. I would say that I mean a lot depends where you came from in the first place. Um I mean, one, one thing that's changed also, if I, if I go back to, for instance, to King's Canterbury, where I had five, almost five uh, very good years, um, four cricket seasons, a couple of rugby seasons, a couple of hockey seasons, all that sort of stuff. The sport was good. The facilities were good. My coach, fellow called Colin Fairservice, was excellent. Um, and I had a really good time with the sport at King's. But when I went back there to... Um, the privilege of opening the new pavilion. We used to have a sort of black wooden shed that was the pavilion when I was there. Suddenly this brand new sparkling glass and metal thing was uh, built right next door to it. 
and was about three times the size. I went back to the school to open that up. I remember watching the first 15 running out to play that day, early season rugby. And they looked like a sort of professional team as opposed to a school team. So backgrounds now, wherever you're brought up, if you happen to go to a school like that, you have, I think, um, a sort of different way of approaching things from an earlier age. So training, practice, all these things are probably instilled in a slightly different way nowadays. Um, but yes, the, sort of the, the education in life. I went to what? I went to Perth for a winter, the four months to play grade cricket, which was a real education. As a young man, 20 years old, um, Australia for the first time. Um, I mean, they, they were brilliant. Uh, I mean, I got to the club, to claim it Cottesloe, my club, which I was introduced to by Graham Garth McKenzie, who was just finishing his Leicester careers and, career in those days. And I got there, and their first thing is they said, mate, we're going to need a nickname for you. Um, we're going to call you the POM. I thought, okay, that's, that's a, a big challenge. It's not going to be an intellectual challenge. It's obviously going to be a lifestyle challenge and a cricketing challenge. And I had a, a brilliant time there. Uh, learned a lot about myself, about them, about Perth, about cricket, about playing on their pitches. Got a stack of runs. And, and, a, and a year later, I was back there playing an Ashes Test match uh, against Rodney Hogg and people like that. So the education in that sense was very, very quick. Whether... Whether I've ever, and I, I suppose one of the great things I've always enjoyed as well is that with a career that's taken me traveling both through playing and broadcasting, um, I used to find and would still find, you know, sort of travel to places like India, Pakistan, absolutely fascinating. Um, you know, all the different cultures you come across in cricket. Um, we had it, at least the good news is we had time in those days not to be completely at cricket grounds all the way through a tour. Tours nowadays, in a way, are you know, too short, too intense. Um, and I think, I mean, I feel in a way for some of these players because they are missing out potentially on the cultures and the experiences that we had all those years ago. Some of the things we did on trains in India, you know, some of the tiger reserves I went to. Um, you know, In Australia, you have all sorts of places you can get to in between games. Uh, you know, All around the world. Caribbean, we got looked after beautifully by some of the great names of Caribbean cricket who were then administrators. So you, know, you go to Trinidad, you get taken down to the islands. Everything There was, a, there was a, a much bigger experience, I think, around the game in those days. Um, and yet, of course, nowadays the, the, you know, the schedules are so crowded that you understand entirely why tours are shorter uh, and why the game is played in a slightly different way. You were skipper, David, on the India Tour 84-5, right? Uh, mm-hmm. when England nicked that 1-2-1. One, one. And then, obviously, we moved into the 85 yep. summer, the, the famous 85 summer when everything you touch turned to runs and so on. Um, and then swaggered into the West Indies that winter for a rather different experience. And that kind of encapsulated English cricket in the 80s, didn't it? It was these extreme highs and almost sort of tragicomic lows. And you were right in the eye of that storm at that time. Um, can you look back? Can you look yeah. back fondly on those days? Um, not all fondly, no. I mean that that's um I mean that's that sort of contrast. And I mean you, you, I mean I always remember for the right reason, not necessarily fondly, but you know, for sort of lifestyle reasons, are you remember the ups and downs and they were pretty extreme. I mean India that India tour you mentioned started with the assassination of Indira Gandhi. So we had a political issue to deal with first up and as captain of England I was in the thick of that. Um, we came out of it. We had a good tour. We won there. 
was a very proud moment. Uh, the Ashes you mentioned, 85, um, you know, the finest year of my career, was a very special moment. When we went to the Caribbean in 86, um, if you remember that remark at the Oval on the balcony at the end of the Ashes series in 85, it was, well, I'm sure they're quaking in their boots, which was said with, um, <laughs> when it's, it's there, it's on tape, it's, you know, it's, I, I look at it fondly. It was said with tongue firmly in cheek. Um, because we all knew. I mean, let's face it, even as even as an optimistic captain with the job of trying to instill and inspire confidence in a squad, um, I, mean, I, I mean, we all knew, I knew full well that the West Indies man for man was stronger. Mm-hmm. My ambition in the, on that tour of 86 was to do better than before in 84, an ambition I didn't fulfil. And I thought we would overall be better against them than we were but yeah. they, they were incredibly strong I mean I still whenever quizzed on this one would say that the West Indies sides of that decade have to be you know just the best sides ever um, yeah. you can talk about Brabham's Invincibles you can talk about the Aussies in the 90s um, many a time people have said to me ah but the West Indies in the 80s they didn't have a Shane Warne and the easy answer to that is they never needed one you know, they're, they're their brand of cricket with brilliant batsmen with uh, you know, a minimum of three 90-mile-an-hour-plus bowlers, but normally four. You know, if Roger Harper came on, that was bliss. If Viv Richards came on to bowl his brand of offspin, non-turning offspin, if Viv came on, um, I mean, places like Jamaica at Sabina Park with a good, hard, fast, bouncy pitch, Viv could bounce you just like Joel Garner or anyone else. Yeah. Of, of two paces. I mean, I, I clearly, clearly remember. You know, you, I'd got through. I mean, one of my, one of my proudest memories is that tour of '81, wasn't it? Where I finished up with 150 in Sabina Park, and you know, Graham Gooch got a brilliant 150 in the first innings, and we managed to draw the game, which in those days was a sort of major triumph. Um, but it was a quick bouncy pitch. You had Holding. Um, who do we have? Holding, Marshall, Croft. Garner, I'm guessing. Um, I think one of the, one of them got injured then at some stage. But you get through facing that lot on this brilliant batting pitch, but admittedly a quick and bouncy one. You get to Viv, and he sort of lobs a couple up in the air at you, which you think, oh, don't just don't do anything stupid with these. And then he bowls your bouncer. So you're back on your knees again, ducking under yet another bouncer. For a bloke whose main skill is battering balls into the far distance and making you know 8,000 runs of his own but he's still bowling bouncers in between non-turning off breaks. And that sums up that experience <laughs> in the 80s. Did you have a bouncer in your locker, David, from time to time when, when you I, used to turn down? Here's another quiz question for you. My one test wicket, um, who uh, I'll let that, one, let that one linger for a moment or two, but it came at the end of... I think your figures were one for one in this innings, but I couldn't tell you who it was. Couldn't tell you who it was. Well, I'll, I'll give you a clue. It was in India. It was the end of the Test Series. Right. Um, and it was the end of a very uh, dull game in Kanpur, which is petering out into a draw, which was fine for us because we were um, you know, going to win the series because of it. Um, and the only way I could get it head height was by letting it drop from a height above Head height. Lovely. The delivery which you know, Charles Palmer, former chairman of Leicestershire when I was there, would uh, describe as a lob. Uh-huh. And he was a fine exponent of the lob. 
Uh, I too followed in his footsteps, became an exponent of the lob. And uh, nowadays, sadly, of course, it is an illegal delivery. But um, I was was dropping these hand grenades pretty much on the head of said batsman. And said batsman, whose name will be revealed any moment now, decided to try and hit hit that ball from Kanpur to Delhi, slightly miscued it, and got it as far as mid-wicket, who had the... The delicate decision as to whether or not to um, justify this appalling delivery with a wicket or to pretend that he hadn't seen it. <laughs> Who was it mid-wicket? Who took it? Uh, oh, God. Well, I think it might even have been Graham Dilly, actually. Um, I know that, I know that Dilly, Dilly, Graham had bowled you know, with pace on this flat Kanpur pitch for four days and barely got its stump height. Um and so he'd put all the effort in. So to see his captain, I mean, I have to look it up. Sorry, I have to, I have to double check this, but it was either him or, or Gat. You know, so let's, let's, let's say it was Graham anyway. And I think you know, he, he'd put every effort in um, as a genuinely quick bowler um, and seen very little come out of that pitch. And then all I did at the end of the game was just lob it in the air. I had Kiri Kamani in deep trouble. He was only quite short, so he was defending with all his might. And Capil was the other end, who was the man who was trying to hit it from Kanpur to Delhi. And uh, there you are, you see. So my, you know, my one test weakness, it had a good scalp. Yeah, superb. When, when people talk about you as a player, they immediately talk about how you looked, your, your style at the crease. Was that something that you cared about or thought about? Did you feel like you had a duty to entertain as well as scoring runs? Or was it just something that came completely naturally to you and you never really thought about? Um Mainly the latter. I won't say I never thought about it. Um, I mean, the style style of play is what kind of you start with. I mean, the the way I evolved as a player was uh, much the way, you know, I started that way, carried on that way. The sort of conscious decisions were probably to um, carry on playing in that same fashion. The... um, Whether it was conscious or subconscious, I'm not quite sure, to be honest, but the... The sort of desire to entertain um, was partly for my pleasure, <laughs> um, partly a sort of sense of that's what was expected. Um, there were plenty of times, obviously, where you have to knuckle down and you know, entertain it. I mean, again, going back to the Caribbean, for instance, as an example, the idea of entertaining uh, was very low on the list. You know, survival of mind and body and all the rest of it those are the main things. Those are the those are the things that were paramount in your mind, and um, yeah, and trying to get some runs. So, I mean, the, the the odd occasion, I actually I I can remember letting myself down with that desire to entertain. There was a there was one game I remember at the at the Oval against New Zealand, where normally speaking, the Oval is one of my good grounds. Uh, New Zealand, one of my favourite oppositions in terms of making runs, and that lovely man Jeremy Coney was on. Um, now, club cricketers would look at Jeremy thinking, well, how on earth does he count as a test match bowler? And I sort of was trying to take that view at the same time. And what they'd done is they'd put a the sort of the standard cover field of sort of four or five men between backward cover, cover, um, extra cover, mid-off, all saving one. And the challenge was to try and get it through. And I thought, okay, tried that a few times, kept hitting fielders. Then I thought I'd try and go over um, because I can't really hang around. There's no point in hanging around to this, you know, this man. We've got to, just got to get runs. We can't just block Jeremy Coney. And I tried to go over, miscued it, caught extra cover. 
So that that worked in their favour, worked against me. And I then had to watch Lammy get 100, which he did with all due diligence by just playing properly. Um, and those are the times you realise that actually personally, you know, you could, you, you, one can take a different approach um, and that you know, attempting to entertain, attempting to move a game forward uh, does come with an element of risk. I mean, I was, I was happy to take those risks a lot of the time and happy not even to think about it a lot of the time, just sort of letting things develop as they did. How frustrating, David, was it to uh, have to hear people misconstrue this style for casualness, when in reality you were just as committed as the next man? It's just that it manifested itself in a different kind of aesthetic to other players and it got misunderstood. That must have been an ongoing frustration, having to weather that misconception throughout your career. Yeah, I mean, again, it's a mix. I mean, I... Would I suppose you know, people ask you questions, for instance, at the end of a career, you know, do you have any regrets? So the, and the there were, there were times certainly where the casualness became real. In other words, where if you are honest, you look yourself in the mirror, honest with yourself, and you say, "Well, was I really a hundred percent ready for the day's play today?" And if the answer is no, you've you know you've let yourself down. Of course, then you get into sort of letting teammates down. And there were days where the the hunger wasn't quite the same. Um, it's why I take my hat off to, to Graham Gooch, because Graham, as he progressed and developed as a, a man and as a player, became, you know, every day to him was important, whether it was for Essex, for England, whether it was a uh, first-class match, a test match, a one-day game, whatever it might have been, every day was important to Graham, more so than many people I've, or most people I've ever played with. And I never quite got to that level, but the... Um, but certainly when people say, I mean, there were days where, you know, you'd make a mistake, yes, or you'd get out, yes, and someone would say, oh, you're not trying, you don't care. And that's what hurts because, um, trust me, when you're walking off with a low score, you are at best disappointed, you're normally uh, peeved, hugely peeved with yourself. And it's normally yourself. You normally look at yourself and say, yeah, that was my fault. Every now and again you look back and think, well, actually – whoever it might be, whether it was Michael Holding, Richard Hadley, Imran Khan, whoever it might have been, Abdul Qadir, you know, they've bowled you a really decent ball, which you could do nothing about. Um, but most of the time, you know, it's at least partly your fault. And it does hurt, and you do care, and you go and sit in the dressing room, and you ponder it, and sometimes for a long time. Most of the time, I try and get over it quickly, because you know, it doesn't take long to realise what you've done wrong. Um and you know, sitting in a dressing room with a towel over your head for hours doesn't achieve anything. So um, I would, I would then sort of try and pick myself up, and then think, yeah, right, if if nothing else, at least I can talk to the next batsman. Um, and you, you know, you, you take your part, you take your place back in a team again, uh, even if you've not had a great day yourself. And th- I mean, that works both ways. Your know, teams look after you, you look after your team. It's you know, it's it's, it's a synergy. Is there a part of you that wishes that you played thirty years later, where the um, well, entertainment and performance are, are, are more closely aligned with each other. Um, I don't know. I suppose. I mean, the sort of the modern era has you know forms of the game which we didn't play. I mean, notably T Twenty, where um, I mean the skills involved are extraordinary. Um, I mean, I used to think I had skills, for instance, for one day cricket, which were in vogue at the time. You know, you could back away and hit it over extra cover, front foot, back foot, whatever it might be. You could you know, manoeuvre yourself at the crease, but there were no I mean, I didn't like wearing um, a visor or a grill, so I was never going to play a ramp shot. 
if I'd known what it was. Um, I once played a reverse sweep in a Sunday league game um, at Cheltenham, but I was completely pissed. Um, <laughs> it was a game that I, it took me by surprise. I wasn't really expecting to happen at all. And we'd spent three hours in a sponsor's tent on the edge of the ground at Cheltenham with a having a lovely time before the umpires arrived around the, around the corner and said, uh, Skipper, we think we can get a start. I said, what? <laughs> so we played this 10-over game with, um, of the 22 players on the field, I would say, probably, I'm guessing, but I'd say 16 would have failed a breathalyzer comfortably. <laughs> Did you middle the reverse sweep? Did you connect? I've had a go at two, um, made contact. Lovely. Um, and I remember I was caught at long off. I was quite proud because I had no idea I could hit it that far. <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, who was the game against? Uh, Gloucestershire. Um, it would have been oh, this must have sort of late when, when was it? late eighties, probably um, mid eighties, late eighties. But we we spent the weekend in Cheltenham, and it had hosed it down all Saturday, all Saturday night, all Sunday morning. When I got to the ground as a responsible captain at that stage, at that time of the day, midday, it looked like there was about two or three inches of water on the ground at Cheltenham, and it was still hosing down. So I sort of phoned back to the the team who was staying at the probably the Queen's Hotel or something in Cheltenham there, and I said, look, lads, relax. You know, have a few beers, whatever you want to do. Come down if you want lunch, but we're not going to play for a month. And yeah, walked across this tent. It was a guy called Roger Moore, not the actor, but a lovely guy called Roger Moore, who had a company called Duraflex, and he had the most fantastic spread in his tent. Uh, cold buffet, pims, two gorgeous girls serving the pims. And as the afternoon wore on, the, the ratio of pims to vodka to lemonade changed dramatically. So there was, and it wasn't getting, wasn't getting softer, I can tell you that. So as I say, it was a real shock. And I think it was Merv Kitchen was one of the umpires, sort of poked his head through the flaps of this tent, which is now battened down against the weather at about half past four and said, we can get a start at 10 past five, 10 overs each. Good luck. So I had to send Nigel Bryars, who was my vice captain, out to toss because I didn't trust myself to get that right. And um, we took it from there. I mean, there were, there were two or three players unconscious, so unavailable for selection. Um, and the, the ones that were sober found it very frustrating because, um, if, for instance, think Gloucester, we, we batted first. Gloucester chased. And they probably had 70-odd to make, something like that, in 10 overs, which is easily gettable. Andy Stovold opened the inning sober, got about 40-odd probably. But he couldn't always get the strike back from those who were pissed at the other end. So, I mean, it was an extraordinary game. David, can I ask you, what's, what's the best drunk innings you saw in the 80s? <laughs> I wonder if it might be beefies. Was it against maybe Queensland for England on tour when he staggered out there? It might not be against Queensland, but I think it was in Australia when he staggered out there without his bat, got... got Pretty much to the crease. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I use that story. I think I might have embellished it slightly, but I use that story as when I do the stage shows. And it's the gist of it is great. We were, It was at the Wacker. Yeah, right. And we were playing West Australia at the same time as the America's Cup was on um, off the coast of WA there. And Harold Cudmore on the British boat, Whitehorse Challenge, were uh, having a go at that. We got invited down for dinner at their headquarters in Fremantle. So it was the usual suspects, both them Gower and Lamb. Um, we had a most fantastic night. The The hospitality was excellent. The food was brilliant. The company was great. The wine was plentiful. Uh, we left Fremantle at about 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, and I think Ian and Lammy 
decided they hadn't really had enough at that stage. They were still thirsty, so they sort of emptied a couple of minibars. Um, whereas I had plenty, I'd, so I'd just gone straight to bed. So the morning comes, and one of the things that Ian refuses to acknowledge is a hangover. So he will always hide a hangover as best he can. Um, but the story basically goes that he spent the entire morning before game starts plumbing his head into a basin of ice water with the physio overseeing. And then when it came to his turn to bat, um, you know, we sort of sent him out waiting to see how far he would get without the bat. Because, you know, he walked out. He walked out with um, the arms swinging and the bat would transfer from one hand to the other and he would swing the arms and make himself look bigger and better every stride he took. And he carried on doing this and he got all the way out there. So, I mean, the... The WA guys had all heard about the story about the night before. I mean, everyone within 50 miles of Perth had heard about the story about the night before. So they all sort of greeted him at the crease and said, G'day, mate, how are you? And he said, never better, never better. You know, feel great. Fantastic. You know, mate, have you forgotten anything? Uh, looks down at his hands, no bat. <laughs> so <laughs> that is, that's how the story goes, and I will tell it as often as need be. And got, that's amazing. Got 70-odd as well? He got, yeah, he got 80. He got 70 or 80. Um, <laughs> And we'd all struggle. I mean, the rest of us had sort of the ball was swinging in the doctor, in the Fremantle doctor there. And we, we'd all struggled against this swinging ball. He just he just smacked it around for 70 or 80. Uh, when questioned at the end of it, and when he could actually speak properly for the first time all day, we said, well, how on earth do you do that? And he said, well, I was seeing three, so I hit the middle one. <laughs> Amazing. In fairness, some of my best club cricket performances have come with a raging hangover. Uh, well, let's face it, the great Garfield Sovers, uh, Gary, Sir Gary used to say if he'd had a late night, it made him much more aware of his duty to the team. So, I mean, for instance, the odd hundred at Lords uh, for the West Indies against England would have come after us for three, four o'clock in the morning, I suspect. Um, and, you know, it, it seemed to fire him up. So uh, it, it's, it's a bloody good excuse to have a great night out. <laughs> If you, if you can get 150, it makes it a really good story. If, unfortunately, you get naught and have to slink away and sleep it off, then no one actually repeats that story. Yeah, I guess those stories don't get told mm. quite as often. <laughs> um, yeah. on, on the Desert Island disc, you, as, as you say, that, that was reasonably early in your career um, and you were asked about what your plans were for retirement and you, you actually said that you weren't overly keen on staying in the game. You said that you wanted to... Uh, potentially have your own travel company. Um, so how did that transition into the commentary box come about? And was that something that you were initially very keen to do and then subsequently enjoy? Um, yeah, it's obviously a lie. Whatever I said then was a complete lie. Um, <laughs> it, might see, it might have been influenced. I mean, I can't remember saying that. It might have been influenced. One of my great mentors and still uh, a friend and you know, a sort of father figure, Fred Rumsey, um, who is renowned for being uh, there at the start of the Professional Cricketers Association, um, who was a very entertaining, still is a very entertaining speaker, and who had Fred Rumsey travel for many years, one of the sort of the first companies that did sports tours. Um, but Fred was a great mate and sort of so a very sort of fatherly figure to me. So he he might have put that idea in my head. Um, but the the way it worked out in the end was that as I was uh, I suppose the last probably four or five years of my playing career, there were opportunities, for instance, if we'd be, if say Leicestershire or Hampshire had been 
ousted from a Benson or a, an AtWest competition to go and do some commentary. Um, I did a couple of summers down in Australia for Channel 9, the World Cup in 92, and the following summer did the Australia-West Indies series when Brian Lara was first making a big name for himself. Um, so I took opportunities to do a bit of commentary work and to work out how it all how it all happens and how to do it best. Um, I did some radio work in the Caribbean for Test Match Special. So all these things were sort of preparation. And when the time came, um, the path was pretty clear, actually, to be fair. And my my agent, a fellow called John Holmes, friend and agent who's you know, still around now looking after uh, or offering advice as and when needed, um, John had planned it really with Gary Lineker as another of his clients. Gary, at the same time, was preparing himself to go into broadcasting. And so the BBC were brilliant, actually. The BBC took us both, um, gave us time and opportunity to learn the business of broadcasting with their resources. Um, so the moment I was ready to quit, I was able to go into commentary with the BBC. Um, I had a column. I became the Sunday Express cricket correspondent for a couple of years, which I wasn't quite so talented at, um, and did all that sort of stuff. So it was very sort of it was a very comfortable segue from playing to broadcasting, and it was a great one. I mean, I I have loved every minute. Uh, I have hugely enjoyed the involvement, um, the people I've worked with, um, and if you know, if, you, if there is a regret, it's that at the moment it seems to be a thing of the past. That was going to be my next question. Is that something you want to get back into? Well, I'd love to. I mean, the um, I, I mean, the, the attitude is very straightforward. I'm far too young to stop doing stuff. Um, I love the you know, have. Let's say I've loved the involvement. Um, you know, the the game has given me so much. Um, yes, I mean, I, I could try and wander off and do some more travelling. I could well, take a gap year. And in fact, one of the one of the few people, one of the few people who currently count as employers are Black Opal Travel, who are new on the block, as it were, in terms of sports travel. Um, and the irony is, of course, that with lockdown across the world, a lot of their plans are. Uh, on hold for now as well but um, we have a role to play with them hopefully if well anyway, it's the biggest if we've ever come across but you know for instance if there's cricket in India next winter I'll be there for that uh, with them um, we're doing this webinar on Friday I think with um, Jason Roy and Zach Crawley who are also tied in with Black Opal so we're going to do that um, for a bit of time on Friday afternoon, you know, a few questions. Gladstone and Small is involved, so Gladys and I will be asking some questions and a bit of a chat. So all those things are you know, ways of keeping in touch. But, I mean, the, the simple truth is, if one is brutally honest, is that, yeah, Sky was great. I loved my 20 years at Sky. Um, it was, a very, again, a very good synergy. It, they were great people to work with and work for. Um, I have to say the money was good and... I miss two things. I miss the involvement. I miss the fun. I miss the people. I miss the cricket, and of course, I miss the money. You know, you, 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 you're, one is used to, to being productive, and at the moment, there is what's known as a bit of a gap. David, would you be interested in doing some work, maybe for the ECB, in a kind of sort of scouting consultancy role? Would would that kind of Role outside of the media interests you, so you're staying in cricket, but you're you're not working for a, an agency as such, not working for a, a TV or, or radio company. Um, I I had a chat with Tom with Tom Harrison a couple of months ago now, start of the season, um, 
a sort of uh, sort of friendly lunch, uh, you know, see if there's anything going type um, mm-hmm. conversation. Um, that sort of role wasn't mentioned as such. Um, I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm in a position, I guess, where I need to either make something happen, or if someone has any good ideas, I'm incredibly happy to consider them. <laughs> you come right for our magazine, but your rates were were well north of what we can afford, unfortunately, David. But you know, maybe uh, we can. Have- hey, Phil, can I can I say now, beggars cannot be choosers. <laughs> I think you'll find my rates might have come back in line with yours. <laughs> I still think there might be a bit of work to go, but we can discuss that later. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's what I was saying. It's it it is a it's a for me. It's a sort of kind of novel experience because what we were just talking about that that segue from playing to journalism and broadcasting was was very smooth, and it was partly, let's say, partly down to people involved behind the scenes who made that happen. Um, but the opportunity was there. I think I'm think I can say that it worked pretty well. Um, I mean, some of the a lot of the stuff I see, for instance, on Twitter or saw at the time when Sky said they were going to let me go was very supportive, um, and there's still stuff going out there right now. So I think I got it reasonably right. Um, so I think I'm pretty good at it, and it would be lovely to get back into that sort of environment. But of course, the, the challenge is this: when you're in the current era, um, it is very, very obvious to those in broadcasting that. And in journalism, you know, so the the trends are different. Um, I mean, I learned so much from being you know, within close proximity to the great man himself, Richie Benno, the likes, you know, all those guys, Tony Gregg, all those people I worked with at Channel Nine first up um, at the BBC. It was Benno, Tony Lewis, Jack Bannister, um, you know, all established, all very good. And you know, so the osmosis, the process of learning about that that whole trade, that whole business, was was smooth enough. And I think I got it pretty right. So, I mean, I, I feel as though I could do that anywhere that is required. Um, but at the same time, I'm looking at a trend which says that, um, you know, in a nutshell, younger and prettier is more the order of the day. So, um, you know, wherever we look across the world, that that appears to be the trend and in every sport. Um, so it's not as though the, it's, it's all the, the older days of, um, you know, Benno, Brian Johnson, Arlett, you know, all the great, great names of broadcasting, and I put them above me for sure, but they, they all had a longevity because that's the way things worked in those days as much as anything else, as much as their immense talents. I mean, they were all brilliant in their, their ever so slightly different ways. But, you know, if, if you were good enough, you just carried on till you know, till the claret got you. Those big BBC names. Mm. I wonder if maybe your destiny is to return back to, to the Beeb. Uh, and rejoin TMS. I mean, there's longevity there, and that would be a beautiful end point, right, to your to your life in cricket to to go and work with Aggers and the like. Yeah, I've um, trust me, I've had I've had a chat or two with Aggers, <laughs> who I think is on my side. Um, I mean, yeah, that sort of thing. I'd be I'd love to do that. I mean, I'd, I'd be very much on side for that. Um, I wouldn't expect to be playing the other stuff the BBC would have been doing this summer with Test Match Highlights. I mean, I would have loved doing that. Um, the 100, I guess, is probably something that you, you, you accept is the wrong sort of sphere for me. Um, again, it'd be, be fun to do, but one accepts there is you know, a, a slant that they want to put on these things. Now, 
Um, whatever preliminary chats I've had or hints that I might have dropped, um, nothing much is happening. Uh, obviously, they have. You know, there's nothing they nothing they can do at the moment anyway. Um, I, mean, I mean, I'd like. I'd hope. I hope there is. Um, I'd like to think anyway that there is scope for every element. You know, for instance, TMS, which is brilliant, um, has evolved a lot over the years, and you know we've we you know we we can listen to some very skillful broadcasting from younger folk from both sexes from players ex players non players you know there is a there is an eclectic mix in that TMS box which has always been what makes it or made it and makes it special so um but i hope you know i'd like to think and jeffrey of course uh, has been around for a couple of thousand years as well um <laughs> You know, he has the voice of experience. I mean, one one hopes that there is you know, space for experience and you know, and broadcasting skill. To be honest, I think it's quite interesting. Phil and I were actually talking about this yesterday. That I guess the people who make the decisions about who who makes the broadcast team these days are probably slightly closer to Phil's age than my age, so they remember you mm-hmm. as as a player. But um, people in my generation. We only remember you. Obviously, we know about your career, but we only remember you as the as the host of English Test cricket. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Gary Lineker mentioned is quite interesting. You're you're to many people the the Gary Lineker of English cricket coverage. So I wonder hmm. if there might not be an appreciation of the fact that to many people you're not a former England player. You are actually just the person who hosts English cricket. So yeah, I think to a lot of people it would be very very odd seeing an English home summer without you. As the face of it, you you have essentially been in the in the spotlight in English cricket since you were twenty one. Is that is that a bit weird when you look back that you've been in the public eye for so long, and not only have you been in the public eye, you've actually been adored by so many cricket lovers for the vast majority of your adult life. Oh yes, carry on, carry on, please. Um, <laughs> um, it's 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 not weird. No, I mean it's because. Um, because, because, because you you become used to it. Um, I think the the hardest part is probably the first bit. Uh, well, I don't know. Even that's not true because you know, the first bit, as I said earlier, your everything you do is sort of pretty instinctive. It's pretty natural. Um, and really thinking at the age of say twenty one about the the long term consequences. Um, you know, that that comes to you probably halfway through a test career. I mean, in my case, what fifteen years worth? Well, probably within a couple of years of playing test cricket, you start to realise how very serious it can be or must be. And you then you have your ups and downs. You get dropped a couple of times. Um, you know, so you you realise that it's not just a breeze. It's not just easy, and that comes very very quickly. But then, being you know being in the spotlight. Um, a lot of that depends actually on who you have around you because there is an inevitability, I think, that in dressing rooms where things are said very honestly, um, you know, tall poppies will be cut down to size in dressing rooms because there is a very strong team ethic. Um, you need that same ability as a captain, as a player, to allow flair to have its day, of course, so the, the great players, the bothams of this world, don't have to obey the same rules necessarily as others. And I was very... I, I try to understand that as a captain, where you saw you. I mean, I didn't want to have a one-size-fits-all strategy for dealing with people under my in, in my teams. But then, 
around you, the people that you are friends with, the, your sort of friends outside of the game, um, the fans, I mean, the people that will come and speak to you, you know, all these people keep you at a level. And you know, if you, I think if ever you sort of develop a, you know, too much of a sort of uh, self-regard or a pomposity, um, you'll find that'll be cut down, cut out of you pretty quickly. So it is actually a very good way of keeping, uh, well, keeping yourself balanced. Um, marriage is quite a good thing for that as well. Uh, you then find out who's in charge and big, in no uncertain terms. So, I mean, you have a, um, you know, the life goes on around this. So the, the, the spotlight thing also for someone like me, it's not permanent. Um, it's not a sort of um, film star, soap opera, whatever it might be, um, existence where wherever you go, you know, people assume you're being trampled on or interrupted or, you know, one can hide, one can sort of, you know, it's, it's not an uncomfortable level of spotlight. You know, it's, it's sort of, it's a, you know, it's a bit of a spotlight, but not a, not a, not particularly bright one. You know, so, you know, things go on very naturally, and very normally uh, around it. Um, we've got a few questions in from, from our listeners. This is what you might enjoy from Ian Davies. Who is the bowler you feared the most and what the best Merlot you've ever had? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> there, there is a possible answer that um, Merlot on its own. Um, what was that great film? It was a lovely film um, set in California, which there's a lot of, lot of derogatory stuff about Merlot there. Um, Sideways. That's it. That's the one. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the one. Um, mm. I don't buy Merlot on its own. I happily... Um, take it when it's softening up a bit of Cabernet Sauvignon and it makes a delicious red. Um, so uh, the answer to the second part of the question is I have no idea. Um, <laughs> and the yeah, the the so the, the bowlers one most fears, well, um, I could sort of probably list half a dozen West Indians, or probably I could probably list I'd probably list about 20 West Indian quicks who in the 80s would all inspire some sort of anxiety in you. Um, I thought Malcolm Marshall was the best of them. It was, it's a huge pick to have to make because you've got people like Michael Holding, my great mate, uh, Andy Roberts, um, Joel Garner, Colin Croft, you, you know, Sylvester Clark, who could hardly get a test match. Um, and Malcolm, who I played with at Hampshire at the end of my career, one of the reasons for going there was to be on the same bloody side as him for once. Um, even then I had to stand at first slip and try and catch it. Uh, but Malcolm, I thought, in the end, was probably the best of them all. So, um, you know, a huge honour to play against him, a huge challenge. Um, but the man, I'll tell you, but the other side to that answer is that the man who got me out three times in a row, LBW Nort, in a county championship match, followed by a Benson Hedges game a few days later, all at Northampton, which is a ground I never got a run at was Tim Lamb, the Right Honourable Tim Lamb, Tiger Tim. Um, anywhere else in the country, I would back myself to get runs. If Northants came to Leicester, remember he started his career at Middlesex, went to Northants. If Northants came to Leicester, I'd have to take revenge and get hundreds. Every time I went to Northants, they would stick Tiger Tim on. Um, if they hadn't got me out, if he hadn't got me out within two or three balls, there was something seriously wrong as far as they were concerned. And so that became my living nightmare. What was it about Tiger Tim that, that uh, you struggled against? His averageness. 
<laughs> no, no, no. I mean, Tim. I mean, Tim's Tim's style. I mean, it was it was um, brisk medium. Uh, might swing a little bit. Might nip it off the seam. Northampton in those days, the pitch there uh, was not my sort of pitch. So I mean, I I would sort of lunge forward, stick a leg down the sort of the line of the stumps. It would invariably swing back in, maybe nip back in. So pitch and nip. So pitching on, hitting, and whoever was standing in the white coat was kind of ready, poised to stick the finger up. And he got to the stage, actually, Tim, Tim, bless him. Um, I mean, he, he, loved, he loved all of it. I mean, I, I, it, he's a lovely man, Tim. And I was, I was meant to be doing a dinner for him at St. Albans School this year, which has been furloughed as well. Um, but the, he once, <laughs> I once walked out to North Ants. Uh, inevitably, Tim was bowling, took guards. Um, at the bloody football ground end, thinking, what am I doing here? You know, this is not going to work. And he ran in and he bowled an orange, which pitched, nipped back and hit me on the pad. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, even that would have would have done me. Um, <laughs> I mean, I used, to, I used to say to captains, when I was no longer in charge of teams, county teams, I used to say to captains, um, and I, you know, when I was at Hampshire afterwards, you know, and we had to go to, I said, Mark, to Mark Nicholas, is there any point in me coming? Do you realise that my career average at Northampton is about 0.3? You know, I mean, uh, it's probably about 20, but, you know, it was, it was it, you know, it, there was just something. I mean, I, I don't want to be unkind about Northampton. I mean, Lammy, my great, you know, Lammy got stacks of runs there. Um, you know, it, it's been a, <laughs> all sorts of things happen there. People do get runs there, but just not me. You and Bell asks, in your years as a commentator, who's been your favourite non-England player to watch? Ooh, crikey. Um, I would guess uh, Brian Lara. Um, I mean, I was there in Antigua for both the world records. Um, I mean, there have been better games of cricket played for sure. Um, but I also watched, going back to my little time, I saw a couple of years at Channel 9 when I first started broadcasting. That series uh, in 92, 93, I think it must have been, Australia, West Indies, uh, commentating at the SCG when Lara got, I think, 275. Uh, Warren would have just been, I suspect Shane was just starting, so it was a sort of still to become great. But Lara just played, you know, the most brilliant shots. Um, and someone like that, I mean, you, there's, that era, of course, was the battle between Sachin Tendulkar, Brian Lara, for you know, who, was, who was the greater player. Um, and you can keep that battle, keep that thing going on for, forever. Um, but Lara just had that something. Um, left-hander, of course. I mean, I got on pretty well with Brian. I mean, a huge admirer of his. Uh, and just watching people play like that and making huge runs like that, because you, you, I can understand, for instance, that um, to play that well and that way, you are inevitably taking risks. So Brian Lara is taking risks, which he has the talent to deal with. But also, he had that immense hunger. I mean, you don't make 365, 375, you don't make 400 in a test match, you don't make 500 in a county game without having a hunger for runs. Handel, Elton John, Genesis, yep. Beethoven, Super Tramp in 1984. Yep. What would your Desert Island Discs be now, David, in, in 2019, 2020, whenever we are? Um, Update those, those discs well, for the, For instance, the, um, the Al Stewart one, I remember, was on the border. That's one of those ones I go back to Every now and again, um, when I'm in an Al Stewart mood, Genesis I still play an awful lot of. Uh -huh. um, Elton, 
you know, we were on tour with Elton, that 86, 87 tour of Australia where Elton had his voice nodule problems and became a cricket groupie for the tour. Um, we've been yeah. so well looked after by Elton and he's got some great songs. I mean, let's, let's face it, the man is a legend. So yeah. a lot of those artists I would pick again. Uh, and I still, you know, I still play a lot of my classical music at home here. Um, so a lot of those, a lot of those things, I might well go with again. So it wouldn't the list wouldn't necessarily be that different. But there's a lot of other stuff come in since that might have to be considered as well. Is it's it's one of the hardest things ever is to nail down all your music into eight. <laughs> yeah, it's an unenviable task. You mentioned to me, to me old Jay, old Jay, you're a fan of. You told me this a few years ago. Yeah, um, something good. That's it. That's, the That's just one of those ones that I, you know, I might go away. I might play it now. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there are lots of things like that where just, you know, just sort of the the mood of the moment. Um, still, in fact, going back to the Merlot question, it's like picking what are we going to drink now? You know, one of the great things I love about wine is the absolute range of it all. You know, I hate being categorized into, you know, people used to sort of talk about the link with Bollinger, which I have some very friendly times with. Um, but you know the sort of the the huge range of grapes, tastes, colours. You know, I love I love the I love sort of the ability to go from one to the other, and it's the same with music. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for that answer. Thank you so much for joining us, David. That was a uh, yeah, it was quite an hour. Oh, well, my pleasure. <laughs> All good fun. I mean, it's, it's obviously it's a very busy time. Um, <laughs> but no, great pleasure. If anything else comes up, just give me a shout. Will do. Absolutely. Definitely will. Phil, pleasure as always. Thank you, sir. Great stuff. This has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, tell your friends. And if you're feeling extra kind, why not leave us a five-star review on the podcast app? Cheers. Sports Social Podcast Network.